Hello, everybody, and welcome to the seventh TGSS of the second time here in Oxford we call Hillary. Um, today, we're very happy indeed to have Nicholas Hobhouse, or Nico, um, present his research on contemporary Nyingma education. Nico holds a PhD um, presidential scholarship at the University of Hong Kong. His PhD research in the Center of Buddhist Studies is supervised by Dr. Georgius Halkias and focuses on the intellectual history of contemporary Nyingma monastic education. As part of his research in 2021, he published an article in collaboration with Catherine Hardy entitled, Shouldering His Guru's Legacy, Kempo Soltrin Lodger's Discourse in Relation to Tersangom after the death of Kempo Tigme Punsok. And in 2022, he presented a paper at the IETS conference entitled, The Nyingma Monastic Curriculum at Lalungar, a close reading of its structure, textual content, and pedagogical influences. So, um, Nico, if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing your screen, um, without further ado, please take it away. Uh, so, uh, thank you very much for um, uh, welcoming me to uh, be with you uh, this evening. And uh, like I was just saying, actually, before uh, before we got going, I graduated from. Uh, Oxford in 2015. Uh, I studied classics as an undergraduate, so uh, I um, really feel like I'm uh, back among friends uh, this evening. And uh, even though I'm here in Hong Kong, I very much feel like I'm with you over there. Um, so uh, just for some context, I'm currently uh, two and a half years. Let me just, oh, hang on. Yeah, perhaps. has that changed? Has the slide changed? Has that worked? Perfect. I am uh, currently two and a half years into a four-year PhD program. Uh, in that time, I've gathered quite a lot of specific information about the education at individual Nyingma monasteries, about uh, individual Nyingma educational leaders, and about the different social, political, and economic conditions uh, in the various domains where Nyingma monasteries are found, and so on. However, I'm in the process, you could say, of trying to find a general big picture narrative that I can apply to the Nyingma sect as a whole, and that can serve as a frame on which to hang all of that specific information. Uh, what I'm going to present in the next 45 minutes or so is an attempt, a, a, an early attempt maybe, at such a big picture narrative, uh, fleshed out with only some details given the limitations of time. I invite you please to uh, give as much criticism uh, as you can, because it is very much a work in progress. I've still got quite a lot of time in my PhD, and I would really appreciate any uh, suggestions how I can really strengthen what I'm trying to say. Um, so when I say I am researching uh, contemporary new monastic education, I use the word contemporary to refer to the period from after the ruptures brought about by the Maoist invasion of Tibet, in the 1950s up to the present day. If then we look at Nyingma monastic education as it existed before that inflection point, it's important to observe that systematic monastic education only took hold in the Nyingma sect in the 19th century with the foundation of the Sri Singha Shedra at Dzogchen Monastery by Gelsi Shempentaye in 1848. In earlier history, there had, of course, been significant individual Nyingma scholars like Ming Chempa and so on. And moreover, monasteries like Katok and Mindraling had indeed at various times offered forms of education. 
However, at no point had the Nimapas collectively and consistently engaged in scholasticism in the full institutional form pioneered at Sankunaitok from the 11th century and richly developed in the Gelug sect especially. Uh, notably, earlier Nimapas had primarily been concerned with Tantra and had not put much collective effort into the study and commentarial interpretation of the sutric corpus of Indian treatises on the five major topics of Madhyamaka, Prajnaparamita, Abhidharma, Vinaya, and Pramana. It was thus only with the foundation and subsequent development of Dzogchen Sri Singha Shedra that monastic education even established a foothold in the Nyingma sect. After that beginning, however, it became more sophisticated and spread more widely. This happened in part due to the activities of a number of key figures, most notably uh, Mipam Rinpoche and Kempo Shenga, who are on this slide. The historical context of these changes included the Rime movement of the 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, during which masters of the Nyingma, Kagyu, and Sakya sects in Eastern Tibet collaborated in preserving and reinvigorating their lineages in the face of Gelug he hegemony, while upholding a, a non-sectarian ethos of respect for all Tibetan Buddhist lineages. However, the, the development of monastic education in the Nyingma sect, and indeed the increased uh, emphasis on sin sincere monasticism uh, more generally, was uh, first isolated as a phenomenon in its own right by Gene Smith, who, who labeled it with the umbrella term, the Gimang movement. Now, a, a key point I would like to make is that at the time of the Maoist invasion in the 1950s, the evolutions triggered by the foundation of Dzogchen Shri Singh Shedra a century before had not yet fully played themselves out. While certain approaches to conducting Nyingma monastic education had become very influential, much was still contested and changes were still taking place. Uh, no settled equilibrium had been reached and even where consensus was emerging, perhaps, its roots were maybe not yet that deep and had the potential to be reversed. So let me give you just some uh, illustrative examples of what was still somewhat in flux. For one, the value of studying at a shedra, namely a, a designated semi-autonomous institution within a monastery with resident teachers and students dedicated specifically to monastic education, was still somewhat contested. While there was a burst of shedra construction in the first half of the 20th century, other approaches still existed within the Nyingma sect. For example, at Changmagar, Tupka Rinpoche gave both textual and meditative teachings within the less structured environment of a religious encampment, a gar, where study and practice were more integrated. While from you know, biographical accounts, uh, there you, from the period, you get the sort of sense that there were a number of peripatetic teachers and students who were moving around in order to give and receive teachings. And also, of course, uh, the Nyingmapas continued to have a rich, ongoing custom of yogic practice that did not engage much in monastic education in general. Second, uh, on curricular questions, even when there was a shedra, the curriculum somewhat varied. Uh, as uh, Chris Hebert has shown in a recent uh, PhD, uh, a characteristic feature of the Sri Singha shedra was that from, on, uh, from early on, its model curriculum, even if not always fully implemented in practice, moved in a gradualist fashion from a foundation that included the study of Tibetan grammar through sutric topics up to tantric topics. 
However, the Katok Shedra, at least at the time of its foundation in 1906, offered a curriculum often referred to in the sources as the 100 texts of Katok, the Shungya, whose precise content is currently unknown, uh, but which seems to have been focused mainly on Vajrayana topics, not Sutric topics. Then, even if Sutric topics were offered, there were often perhaps disagreements about which Indian root treatises exactly should be used to study them. Now, Kempo Shenge introduced an extremely influential rubric called the 13 Great Texts, the Shunchen Chusum, but other uh, Indian root treatises were st studied, not least Shantarakshita's Madhyamakalankara, the Umagyen, to which Nipam wrote an important commentary. And then even when there was agreement on the study of particular sutric treatises, uh, the question of what commentaries should be used remained contested. Notably, Shenga wrote a set of annotation commentaries, Chendrel, to his 13 great texts that avoided the philosophical and soteriological disputes that had animated intersectarian uh, Tibetan scholastic debate for almost a millennium, and instead went back to the words of the Indian root texts, while Mipam and his successors directly engaged in those Tibetan disputes and staked out a distinctively Nyingma position in relation to them. Third, certain pedagogical issues were contested, most notably the role of debate. As the name Shedra reveals, which one could literally translate as explanation college or commentarial school, this institution, uh, the institution founded by Gelsey Shempentaye, self-consciously contrasted itself to Gaelic educational institutions where debate was the dominant pedagogy. Indeed, it was verb instead, it was verbal explanation, shaper of the root treatises that was emphasized. Nevertheless, in a large part due to the influence of Mipam, debate did start to gain at least some prestige within the Numa sect. As his biography and writings attest, Mipam on occasion engaged in both verbal and written debates. Perhaps most significantly, he wrote a commentary on Dharmakirti's Tema Nandrel, the Lekring Nangwai Ter, uh, and other related works that brought the topic of Pramana, Tema, into the Nyingma mainstream for the first time. Uh, and I think since debate, uh, respect for debate as a pedagogy is to a high degree rooted in respect for the soteriological of pramana as a topic of serious study, the writing of this commentary was crucial. By contrast, Kempo Shenga placed less emphasis on debate and did not include any treatises on pramana in his 13 great texts. Now, these are just some pertinent examples, but hopefully give you a flavor of the ongoing dynamism of the Nyingma milieu before the 1950s. It is therefore fruitful, I think, to muse on what might have happened if the Maoist invasion had never taken place. Would the various issues I have just discussed have resolved themselves gradually? And would the Nyingma sect as a whole have converged on a fairly conform, settled approach to monastic education? perhaps centered on Dzogchen Monastery or a few other key monasteries, akin to how the Gaelic sect before the 1950s had a fairly settled system of monastic education dominated by the three seats, the Densa Sum. Or would many issues have continued to be contested and would a diversity of approaches continue to have been seen? With this, 
question in mind, let us turn to the Nyingma monastic education scene in the present day. What immediately drums out is a striking pattern whereby most of the Nyingma approaches to monastic education in India, Nepal, Sikkim, and Bhutan are relatively similar, whereas those in Eastern Tibet show much more diversity. From the same starting point, the still dynamic educational situation at the onset of the 1950s, one world of Nyingma monastic education seems to have arced towards a sort of unity, whereas the other is much more diverse. Now, uh, here you see a sort of list of all the shedra I've gathered information from. Uh, in, uh, in what follows, I will group uh, India, Nepal, Sikkim, and Bhutan together with the shorthand exile, even though, of course, uh, northern Nepal, Sikkim, and Bhutan were historically Tibetan Buddhist regions, even before large numbers of Tibetans came into exile from the 1950s onwards. And my reason for this is that the monastic education seen in those regions has been strongly influenced by the developments in the wider Tibetan exile community. Uh, so let us look at some details of this. The basis for what I will describe are official documents and uh, interview transcripts relating to monastic education gathered during fieldwork in Nepal, Sikkim, and India last summer, and also from contacts in eastern Tibet. Currently, my knowledge of the situation in exile is more comprehensive and detailed, as you can probably see from that slide, but I do already have enough information about eastern Tibet to draw, I think, meaningful conclusions and hope to supplement that information through fieldwork there this summer. Um, here's a bit of a homemade map with, you can probably see yellow dots that might not be very clear, uh, where basically the location of these Shedra are. So you can see down all the way in South India near Bila Kupe, and then in Northwest India around Dharamsala, Bir and Dharadun, then in Nepal, mainly around Boda in Kathmandu, in Gangtok, and also a number in Bhutan. And you might notice interestingly that the exile region is far more geographically spread out, e even though I'm going to argue that the education offered is uh, far more uh, conform. Whereas in fact, the Eastern Tibetan monasteries, at least on a map of this scale, seem to be rather close together and yet are very offer very different educations. And uh, here just, you know, for Flavor is an example of what a curriculum document looks like. So this is from Larangar. You know, I've got a lot of these sorts of things. You know, this one I think is from um, Dokshan Monastery in India. You know, so the, this is the sort of information I've been using for my sources. So um, uh, if I then move on. So in examining the elements of the contemporary systems of monastic education, one sort of helpful way of just organizing the discussion is to group those elements uh, whose origin predates the 1950s together and those whose origin postdates that period. Now, one might be tempted to further label those categories as traditional and modern. However, uh, caution should be exercised. As Janet Gatso discusses, uh, those terms can be taken to imply various uh, assumptions which and must be questioned. First, for example, the assumption that the traditional situation that existed in Tibet before the 1950s was static. In fact, as I've already said, it was a period of quite dramatic change within Nyingma monastic education. Uh, second, the assumption that contemporary Tibetan Buddhist religious figures only exercise agency insofar as they seek to preserve a traditional past, while modernity is conceived as a phenomenon that somehow imposes itself upon them from outside. Uh, 
without their agency. This assumption too must be questioned. Nonetheless, I think there's still something potentially fruitful about thinking in terms of tradition and modernity, even if only heuristically and for the purposes of sort of categorizing what you see within a curriculum. Uh, so I use the terms, but with, with caution. Uh, interestingly, it's not uncommon to hear non-monastic Tibetans, uh, both in exile and in Eastern Tibet, referring themselves to how traditional monastics in general are. And moreover, monastics themselves often explicitly use the language of needing to adapt to the modern world. Starting then with those elements whose origin predates the 1950s, a, or you know, the traditional elements in inverted commas, a first fact to observe is that pretty much every large Nyingma monastery in exile now has a shedra and a permanent set of teachers and students whose primary responsibility is monastic education, even if they also partake in ritual duties. So that's in exile. In Eastern Tibet, too, there are Shedra at the major mother monasteries of Dzogchen, Pelyul, Katok, and Shechen, as well as at the key institution of Larangar. However, there's also this striking example of Yachengar, which has a population of thousands of monastics, including a majority of nuns, but which largely eschews monastic education and instead focuses on tantric rituals and meditation from the preliminaries onwards. Second, uh, in exile, the Shedra education is almost invariably fixed with a precise, clearly defined curriculum. In Eastern Tibet, by contrast, while some curricula are fixed, there is also a continuation of what Borchett has described as the apprentice mode of monastic education, where the relationship between the teacher and the student is deemed more important than the exact textual content of what is studied where there is greater flexibility for the teacher to decide what to teach in a fairly spontaneous fashion. Then, even insofar as there is a more or less fixed curriculum, in exile there is notable conformity. For one, the main curriculum at most Shedra, with only a couple of exceptions, has nine classes corresponding to nine years of study. These tend to be structured with some crossover as one year for foundational topics, including grammar and the and Shanti Deva's Bodhicharya Matara. Oh, sorry, has the screen changed? Is it back? Yeah. Uh, as uh, five years for sutric topics and three years for tantric topics. In Eastern Tibet, however, while the Pelyul curriculum has the same nine classes, the Dzogchen curriculum has 13 classes, while the Larungar curriculum, although grouped into seven classes, tends to take around 15 years to complete. So again, the Eastern Tibetan situation is far more varied than the situation in exile. Uh, as for textual content, in exile, most of the Shedra curricula are again quite similar in both their textual content and the order in which those texts are studied, with minor differences often being the swapping in of, one of a text from one's own specific lineage, where there is a like-for-like -like alternative, such as the use, say, of Shechen Gyaltsat's Dharma history, his Churjung at uh, Shechen in Nepal, or the use of Minling Pema Gyorme's commentary on the Abhisamaya Lankara at Mindraling. Notably, at all exile Shedra, there is an integration of both Mipan's and Shenga's commentaries, even if the precise exact numbers of those commentaries vary. 
However, in Eastern Tibet, there is a much greater range of choices in regard to this question. Dr. Sri Sinka uses seven of the Sutric commentaries by Schenger in the main curriculum, which is more than at most Shedra in exile. But Larongar strikingly uses none of his Sutric commentaries at all, while emphasizing every one of Mipam's Madhyamaka works, and also having a much extended class dedicated to the study of the Great Perfection. At Katok too, Schenger's commentaries are not used. Yeah. As for pedagogy in exile, with some minor variation, explanation, shapa is still emphasized, but debate, serpa, tends also to be practiced in a designated evening session. And there is the widespread study of debate manuals, such as the Takrik by Kempo Tundru. In the contemporary period, a number of Kempos and Lopans across the exile space, and uh, Numdruling especially, have uh, written introductory works for use in educational settings. Uh, on pramana and debate, such as Kempo Tsondru, Kempo Padon Sherab, Kempo Pema Sherab, Open Karma Punsa, and others. Um, in Eastern Tibet, by contrast, while debate is certainly practiced, uh, practiced, its value is in some cases treated with more skepticism. For example, Jan Ronis, uh, who uh, runs the BDRC now, but uh, was at Katok in the early 2000s, uh, told me that, the, uh, and stayed there for a long period of time while writing his own PhD, uh, told me that the leading Kempo at that time, Kempo Sonam Tem uh, Tempa, thought that debate adulterated the Nyingma and was a much later accretion and that the Shedra was the Nima way of doing things, and that the Shedra should not be a Tsemidratami, a debate college. And even Kempo Tsotrum Lodro at Larangar, where debate is used, writes in his uh, Summer Sunshine, his Sokeni Er, Volume 1, that monastics should not mistake debate for the core of their practice. So again, a bit more variety in Eastern Tibet. As for, you know, in this categorization into traditional and modern, as for development whose origins post-states the 1950s, in exile, one sees a tight formalization of bureaucratized systems of examination, including written examinations set and marked in a blind, impartial fashion, leading to standardized qualifications at the, at the completion of various stages of the curriculum authenticated by official certificates. So I've got some different examples here uh, taken from Shedra uh, across India and Nepal. Uh, of course, however, formalization is a matter of degree. A structured, relatively fixed, traditional education was offered at Dr. Shreesinghe before the 1950s. This highlights how careful we need to be with rigid categorizations of traditional and modern. Anyway, in exile, this strong ten, uh, trend towards academic formalization is interestingly treated with some caution. For, an exa for example, in an interview with me, uh, Chokinimo Rinpoche, the founder of Kanin Chedrup Ling in Nepal, warned about the risks of being attached to degrees rather than to the study and practice of the Dharma as its own end. Nonetheless, there's a very clear strong trend in exile towards this academic bureaucratization. In Eastern Tibet, the situation is much less tightly formalized. As far as I'm currently aware, there are rarely official certificates awarded at intermediate stages of Shedra curricula. And even the title of Kempo, while awarded in a relatively standard academic fashion at some institutions like Larangar, is often bestowed in a far less formal way by other monasteries on the basis of esteem rather than measurable academic performance, or in fact, more just with the traditional usage of being the one who uh, bestows the Vinaya vows. Um, 
A second modern development uh, uh, is the integration of new subjects, especially languages such as English and Chinese, and also science learning. Uh, in fact, both in Dexal and in Eastern Tibet, these subjects are rarely seen in the main curriculum at Ashedra, and indeed, if they're taught at all, might only be taught in the school, the Lotra, or uh, you know, for novice monks, or be taught in an extracurricular fashion. And in fact, I'm not, while I'm drawing this big contrast uh, between exile and Eastern Tibet, I'm not able to state a clear contrast in regard to language and science subjects, as it seems quite often to be uh, particular to individual monasteries. So at least in this regard, not such a clear pattern of a standardized exile situation and a more diverse Eastern Tibetan one. And a final, well, you know, I was just um, summarizing some examples, but a third modern development one could talk about is the expansion of monastic education to nuns. Now, this is very much an ongoing process. I suggest that on this issue, the pattern I am highlighting does hold, and that there is, in fact, notable conformity across the exile space, whereas there is more diversity in eastern Tibet. In exile, the Nyingmapas have, broadly speaking, gone along with, or even followed slightly behind, developments for nuns in the Tibetan Buddhist milieu in exile more generally, driven by the likes of the Dalai Lama, the Tibetan Nuns Project, and even international organizations like Sakyadita. The clear trajectory is that nuns are gradually becoming able to receive a very similar education to that of monks. However, no Nyingma nun in exile has yet been awarded the title of Kenmo, the female equivalent of Kenpo, despite that very title being awarded for the first time by the Sakyapas last year, and the title of Geshe Ma being officially awarded in the Gaelic set since 2012. However, I get the impression from my field work that when one Nyingma monastery, most notably Namdraling, finally does get around to awarding that title, it will probably be taking, uh, it will be taken up at Nyingma monasteries across the board, or at least where they have a nunnery. By contrast, in Eastern Tibet, strikingly, there does not seem to be one approach to this topic. While for most Nyingma nuns, there are precious few opportunities for rigorous monastic education, at Larangar, Liang and Taylor have shown, as, as they have shown, an educational program culminating in the title of Kenmo was introduced already back in the 1980s, with the first graduates receiving the Kenmo title in the 1990s. So that summarizes some of the large-scale contrasts between the Nyingma monastic education in exile and in Eastern Tibet in the contemporary period. Of course, in such a quick summary, I've simplified a great deal and have glossed over what diversity does exist even in exile, but hopefully I've illuminated what I take to be the overall pattern. So what might be the reasons for this large-scale difference between the relatively conform Nyingma educational milieu in exile and the relatively diverse milieu in Eastern Tibet. I contend that the structures of collective leadership and organization in exile have been a key factor, maybe certainly not the only factor, but a, a, a key factor that has allowed the monastic educational model brought to maturity at one main monastery in particular, Namdrali, to be widely adopted across the entire exile space. While the absence of an equivalent system of organization has prevented anything similar happening inside Eastern Tibet. Thus, I do not believe that the relative consensus in exile is because the monastic leaders at separate monasteries have all individually come to the same conclusion about the best way to combine the traditional, traditional and modern aspects 
that serve as the ingredients from which a contemporary monastic educational system might be constructed. Were it not for the collective organization of the Numapas in exile, I think you would see a much greater range of educational approaches, akin to what is seen in Eastern Tibet. Indeed, at Mindraling in India, which has a nine-year formalized Shedra curriculum, a leading Lama who I interviewed expressed worry that graduates of the Shedra often neglected Mindraling's ritual tradition, uh, leading me to speculate that if it was solely up to him, he would probably conduct the Shedra in a very different way. Let me spell out my argument by looking in more detail at the history of the contemporary period in exile. Mandraling Monastery was founded by Penor Rinpoche, the throne holder of the Pelio lineage in Bilakupe in South India in 1963. It is notable that many of the mother monasteries of the Nyingma sect struggled to be uh, re-established in exile at all, partly due to the challenging conditions faced by the Tibetan refugees in general, and partly due to factors specific to the individual monasteries, such as that no senior figure capable of, capable of refounding the monastery made it into exile. Thus, after Namdraling, Mindraling was refounded in 1965, but Shechen only in 1980, Dodrydrak in 1984, and Dzogchen only in 1992. The main Katok monastery has never been re-established in exile. The Shedra at Namdraling was formally established in 1978 after a great deal of hardship and due in no small measure to the perseverance of Penor Rinpoche himself. Previous to that, formalized Nyingma education, both monastic and non-monastic, had been established on a small scale at what is now the Sikkim Institute of Higher Nyingma Studies and at the Central Institute of Higher Tibetan Studies. But neither of these had the capacity to recreate full-scale Shedra education. Moreover, previous to 1978, both Namdraling and Mindraling sometimes invited peripatetic teachers to hold classes for a period of time. One education list of particular note in that period was Kempo Tsondru of Dzogchen Sri Singha Shedra in Tibet, who came into exile and taught at all four of the institutions just mentioned, culminating in serving as the founding Kempo of Namdraling Shedra in 1978, before dying prematurely a year later. Kempo Tsondru, uh, Tsondru was arguably the most important link in transmitting Dzogchen Sri Singha Shedra's system of education into exile. But that is not to say that the curriculum established at Namdraling exactly copied, even in its traditional elements, what was taught at Dzogchen Tree Singha before the 1950s. This is interestingly highlighted when you compare its curriculum to that at Dzogchen Tree Singha in Eastern Tibet today, which of course is also based in part on what was taught there before the 1950s, and see that they diverge in multiple, way, in multiple ways. Thus, as Piercy discusses in a 2015 article, Namdraling's curriculum was modeled upon the Dzogchen curriculum, but also drew upon other influences, both from pre and post the 1950s, including the nine-year structure of the Central Institute of Higher Tibetan Studies academic curriculum. Moreover, Namdraling's educational system continued to develop in certain ways, even after it was first established. Penor Rinpoche, for example, seemed to have kept pushing for improvements in debate as evidenced, for example, by a speech he gave in 1999, where he noted that some senior Nyingmapas did not support debating, but that he personally thought it was very important. And uh, if I quote from Kempo Sonon Tsewang's uh, translation of this speech in A Lamp on the Path, uh, Penor Rinpoche said, you should develop 
debating skills. The Kyabje Rinpoche's of the Nyingma tradition are not happy with the debates. The reason I initiated it and maintained it is because it helps one to develop the intellect and retain scriptural knowledge. But then coming back to sort of the main point I'm making, why, why did Namjuling's education system spread so widely? It probably owes a lot to the fact that like a capitalist entrepreneur who's the first to supply a service for which there is a large pent-up demand, demand and Namjuling Shedra cornered the Nyingma monastic educational market at an early stage, which meant that its population of both students and teachers grew quickly, which meant that it gained prestige and could attract greater financial support, which allowed it to grow and improve its educational offering further, and thereby attract yet more students and teachers and so on. However, as I've said, the factor I really wish to emphasize is the wider leadership and organization of the Nyingma sect in exile. So on coming into exile, the Dalai Lama and the exile government he established wanted a leader to represent each of the main sects of Tibetan Buddhism. Whereas the other sects had well-developed institutions of leadership, whether the Sakyatrizins, the Karmapas, or the Gandan Tripas, the Nyumapas had no history of such institutional leadership and instead had historically tended to gravitate towards charismatic figures regardless of their institutional status, especially treasure revealers, Turton. Uh, perhaps because he was such a figure, in 1960, Dujon Rinpoche was chosen by the Nyingmapas to fulfill the required leadership role, which he held until 1987. After his death, Dilgo Kyenso Rinpoche took the role until he died in 1991, and then Pano Rinpoche took the role until his retirement in 2001. Crucially, all three of these figures gave strong support to the Namdraling Shedra in its early years, thus giving that Shedra some manner of official status as a Shedra for Nyingmapas in general. Notably, in 1978, Dilgo Kente Rinpoche, even before he became the head of the Nyingma sect, gave the official name to the Shedra, the Ngakyo Tolot Donak Rigpe Jungme Ling. Importantly, he named it a Nyingma Institute, not a Pelul Institute. A few years later, in 1984, Dujo Rinpoche wrote a formal letter in his official capacity of, as the head of the Nyingma sect, eulogizing and giving his blessing to the Shedra. And this uh, letter is still printed at the front of the official uh, curriculum booklet uh, distributed at Namdrali. And then, of course, Penal Rinpoche himself once head of the Nima sect could continue to give that institutional support. So from the top down, the first three heads of the Nima sect in exile, who commanded both their individual charismatic, but also their newfound institutional authority, all gave their official endorsement to the Shedra as representative of the Nima sect as a whole, meaning that the leaders of any other Shedra that might be established later would naturally look to Namdraling Shedra as the model to follow, lest they might seem perhaps to be positioning themselves in opposition to the officially endorsed Nyingma approach. In addition to this, in part perhaps simply due to the straightened circumstances in exile and the need for cooperation, but also in part, no doubt, because of the improved structures of collective organization within the Nyingma sect, Namdraling Shedra also became a key hub from which large numbers of teachers, whether Lopons or Kempos, were sent out to monasteries across India, Nepal, Sikkim and Bhutan to help support the foundation of new Shedra there, or at least to help with less formalized types of teaching where resources were fewer. 
Over time, Landrelin's Riggs uh, editorial department also produced standard textbooks in the DEP rather than PHAR format that could help support the establishment of the Landrelin curriculum of study. For example, they look like this, and I picked this up in a, in a bookshop in Boda in Nepal, so not at Landrelin. And this is one for the, it even describes what year of the course it's for, it's for the fourth year of the course. And this is Mipam's commentary on the Tema Nandra. So designated textbooks for a, 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 a curriculum that was then replicated and spread widely. Such systems of leadership and organization have not been as possible in Eastern Tibet. The case of Laranga is particularly interesting. Since its foundation by Kempo Jume Punsok in 1980, it has played a role in Eastern Tibet that might sound somewhat similar to the role I've just described for Namdraling in exile, namely serving as a hub for training monastics who could then serve as teachers across Eastern Tibet and indeed Tibet as a whole. Indeed, for a time, Larangar served that role not only for the Nyingma tradition, but for the other sects too, and grew to a size far greater than any monastery in exile ever has, with its, for example, with its population uh, numbering 9,300 in the year 2000, according to Capstone. And uh, that has also, I think, uh, estimated to have increased even in subsequent years. However, the conditions that have allowed Larangar to play this role are very different from the situation for Namdraling. And Larangar's influence vis-a-vis -vis the Nyingmapas across Eastern Tibet has thus, uh, thus has a very different quality. Notably, Larangar's import importance is derived not from any official status as the primary Nyingma educational institute, institution, but to a high degree from the nimble way it has navigated the post-Mao social political landscape. First as an encampment, a gar, not subject to the same oversight as a monastery, and then later as a, from 1987, as a Buddhist academy, a Yuan, constrained but also somewhat protected by government regulations. However, the same political regi regime in which Larangar has been able to thrive relative to other institutions has also had a limiting effect on its ability to directly shape the education at other monasteries. The Communist Party of China has tended to periodically clamp down on manifestations of Tibetan collective organization in general. While teachers trained at Larangar have been involved in setting up institutions elsewhere, this, as far as I can tell, has happened more informally than the process whereby Namdraling officially sends its own lopons and campos to other institutions for designated periods. On a slightly different note, uh, but also related, rivalries between Nyingma monasteries in Eastern Tibet arguably tend to be stronger anyway, in part because these rivalries are also sometimes rooted in local regional identities. In practice, what this has all added up to is that Larangar's particular curriculum has not seemingly been taken up as a replicable model by other leading Nyingma Shedras, even when Kempos trained at Larangar have been involved in teaching at those other Shedras, and nor has the curriculum at any other one monastery been taken up in such a widespread way. So I want to finish by reflecting on the implications of what I've said, what you know, on what the implications might be for Nyingma monastic. Uh, for Nyingma identity in general, especially, and especially for its scholastic and institutional identity. Now, these really are very nascent thoughts, more sort of musings than fully formed ideas that I've only sort of fairly recently started to uh, sort of think about as significant in relation to my research. But uh, I'll sort of try some of them out and, uh, and sort of see where they lead.
So there's lots of angles uh, from which uh, to attempt to answer this question. The first point I would make is that both in exile and Eastern Tibet, it is notable that Nyingma monastic education has been reestablished at all. The innovations of the so-called Gemang movement were, as I have said, still relatively recent at the time of the great ruptures brought about by the Maoist invasion. Given the enormous struggle it took to re-establish monastic education, both in exile and in Eastern Tibet, the fact that so many institutions have indeed re-established Shedra is notable and suggests that what began in the 19th century has changed the Nyingma sect for good. No longer, I contend, can it be said that the Nyingma path should primarily be defined maybe by the fact of you know, upholding various tantric lineages in the category of both Kama and Terma. Of course, that aspect of the Nyingma sect is still prominent outside of the Shedra, whether in the wider monastery, in retreat centers, or in caves in the mountains. And indeed, it's a, still an important part of Nyingma monastic, uh, a Nyingma identity. However, Nyingma engagement in scholastic pursuits is now also firmly entrenched. The elevation of Mipam to a status arguably equal to such unquestioned Nyingma luminaries as Longchenpa is both a cause and a symptom of this, of this transformation. In his lifetime, Mipam was a respected scholar practitioner, but he did not have the prestige of being a reincarnate Lama or Turton. However, after his death, already in the first half of the 20th century and continuing into the contemporary period, his star has only risen. This has happened in part due to the activities of influential disciples and devotees of Mipam, such as Kempo Jimmy Pulsok, but also, I'm sure, due to the increase in monastic education's relative importance in relation to the Nyingma sect as a whole. Mipam's rise and the rise of monastic education as a key component of Nyingma identity are interrelated. However, uh, as monastic education increases in relative importance from the Nyingma Pass, so probably does the significance of differences in the details of monastic education. What do the patterns I've described reveal about the present and future identity of the Nyingma sect? And what are the implications for Nyingma identity of the institutional structures that I've said underpin those patterns? On one level, it's probably too soon to say if the effects of the foundation of Sri Singha were still playing themselves out over 100 years later, how much more the effects of the Maoist invasion. However, some searching questions I suppose might be posed. Will the exile and Eastern Tibetan domains converge? While I've argued that the two tracks have mainly developed separately in parallel, there have been some small crossovers. And especially when there has been a monastery of the same lineage in both domains, the connections can be illuminating. In the case of Namdraling in India, uh, of Namdraling in India and the sister Pelul Monastery in Tibet, there are fairly strong links, and the same education is often in both places, due to the fact that Pema Sherab, the senior Namdraling Kempo, spent some years at Pelul in the 1990s and established the Shedra there. So that might suggest that convergence uh, may be the pattern. But slightly differently, in the case of Shechen, the leading Kempo of the monastery in Nepal, Kempo Gyume Tultrin, who himself spent many years at the monastery in Eastern Tibet, told me that our two monasteries are connected emotionally, but academically, I think we are separate. And different again in the case of Dzogchen, the monastery refounded in South India and the monastery in Eastern Tibet are almost totally separate, in part due to the two monasteries recognizing different men as the authentic Dzogchen Rinpoche. 
Probably overall convergence between the two domains will only take place on a large scale if the Tibetan political situation changes. If not, it's possible that the two Nyingma worlds, which exist in very different social, political, and economic conditions, will further diverge. However, even if the two domains converged, what would the convergence mainly manifest on the level of individual monasteries? And the Nyingma sects as a whole refer, revert to being a loosely bound family of distinct lineages, monasteries, and charismatic individuals without tight institutional organization? Or would the unprecedented degree of institutional unity seen in exile become the norm? It is, of course, hard to say, but I will finish by noting that there are signs the institutional organization seen in the first few decades of exile is already starting to fray. After the comparatively stable era of institutional leadership from 1960 up to the early 2000s, the Nyingmapas have entered a period of instability. First, a succession of elderly Rinpoches, like Trulsuk Rinpoche, Tsetral Rinpoche, of the first generation in exile, who were appointed the head of the sect usually on the basis of spiritual authority, died in relatively quick succession. Then in 2015, at the time when the back needed to be handed down to a new generation, no single candidate stood out. So a compromise was reached whereby the heads of the mother monasteries in exile would be appointed the supreme head of the sect as a whole in three year rotations. Then that model in turn collapsed in 2018 when the next, you know, the next in line in the rotation refused to take up the position, uh, meaning that there is now a leadership vacuum with the committee in charge of organizing the Nyingma Munlan prayer festival, a uh, festival technically, even though it's a committee, given the title of head of the sect, but with the reality being some sort of stasis. Perhaps the page has already turned on an exceptional era and the classic Nyingma trope of distaste for institutions, politics and centralized authority is reasserting itself once more. Indeed, while some of my interviews, interviewees expressed exasperation with the current leadership situation, some uh, seem to think it was no bad thing at all. And with that, I think I will finish. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.